invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1 as we look at, no doubt, a very familiar passage probably to you. By way of preface, I remind you of what I entitled this Advent series, Reflections of the Father, for a very specific reason, because we are studying passages that feature the uh, Joseph together, but I want to make very clear that my firm belief, if you did not know, is that the Bible is about Jesus, <laughs> and uh, I think it would always best be preached theocentric, God-centered. So we open it to read about God and about Jesus and the Bible and everything we read in, and I believe ultimately points to Jesus. But we do know that characters and themes and events and plots in it may not feature such persons by name. Nevertheless, in examining the earthly father of Jesus, I believe we see reflections of God the Father. So that's my twofold meaning in the name of this Advent series. Here in Matthew 1, we are catching up in the middle of really one thought, though, that's been happening. And that one thought is that Joseph uh, discovers that his betrothed Wife is pregnant, and betrothed means more than what we understand engagement is, but less than actually married. Uh, They're not living together, and they haven't consummated their marriage. But Matthew told us that she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and so Joseph decided to divorce her quietly. We pick up right after that cliffhanger (laughs) that he says, oh, I'm done with you, Mary. So I know you don't know the story. You're on the edge of your seat. It's what's going to happen next. So I invite you to stand and to, so you don't have to wait anymore. We'll be reading verses 20 through 24. Um, Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 20 again. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did As the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife. And yes, we will stop right there and look at verse 25 another time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your word. Help us to receive it. Help us, Holy Spirit, to do what you want. Do what you want us to do in response to it. Father, we ask that you would be the one speaking and not I. And we pray this in the person, work, and power of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I've used this phrase before, but I'll say it again because I love it so much. Faith is trust all grown up. (laughs) Faith is trust all grown up. Faith, for me at least, whenever I... A lot of the time, the the, the first thing that comes to my mind is just the idea of belief and maybe some abstract 
esoteric qualities to it. Like that's just a Christian word for belief. (laughs) Well, then why wouldn't we just call it belief? I went to Matthew, our author, his first usage of the word faith in his book. Matthew 6.30, Jesus is talking about not worrying to his disciples. He says, God provides for the birds and adorns the flowers. How much more will he take care of you, O you of little faith? And there is one Greek word comprising that phrase, of little faith. But the root word is the word for faith throughout the Bible. And maybe Dean can correct me. Pistis? Is that pretty close? close. Okay. And other words that the English might use for faith could be belief, what we talked about, but also trust, confidence, fidelity, or faithfulness. Faith is trust all grown up. A common illustration that my dad told me is he would say to you guys, you all have faith in those pews because you're sitting in them. <laughs> well, faith, pistis, the author of Hebrews tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And he would go through the rest of the chapter, chapter 11, describing people who had faith primarily in promises. Faith in things that they couldn't see. Abraham was promised a great nation and land that he never saw, nevertheless trusted that that would be his inheritance. We were building the picture last week, if you were here, about Joseph and Mary, that they had good, wished-for, anticipated days ahead of them, right? They were about to be married. Some of you know this phrase also that I like from C.S. Lewis, chronological snobbery. (laughs) That is, we live now, but then we look at things that happened in the past and we think that they were somewhat dumber, that they lived lives maybe of less value and enjoyment, And maybe we think we've progressed. Well, the biblical author Solomon laughs at the possibility of progress in Ecclesiastes. He says there's nothing new under the sun. And I bring that up because I I hope you don't look back at Joseph and Mary and say, well, that was an arranged marriage. And they were probably being forced into it and they didn't like it. I don't think so. It's all they ever knew. And so I think the enjoyment and the anticipation for a wedding was building and like I said, the, the town that they lived in, Nazareth, was a village of one to 200 people. So it's not like they didn't know each other growing up. They were probably best friends. You know the phrase, you can't pick your friends. Well, you can't pick your best friends in that sort of population, probably. <laughs> so no doubt, Joseph and Mary were not indifferent strangers being forced to get married. No, they were happy. They probably even maybe have been crushing on each other for some time. The betrothal ceremony happened. There was an interim. And then an angel shows up to Mary and changes everything. You're pregnant. Well, Mary's a virgin. How so? The angel tells her that her cousin Elizabeth, who is not a virgin, but on the other side of the spectrum is old and barren, but she's pregnant. Miracles do happen. And so Mary receives that. She submits to it. She says that she's the Lord's servant and that she is. She heads out to see Elizabeth. She's there for about three months. And we're guessing that she's probably close to four months 
when she gets back to Nazareth and Joseph is probably shocked and hurt. Oh, you're pregnant. We talked about all of this last week, which is why I'm flying by it. But the point is, is we know that he's considering divorce. We don't know if Mary, if Mary gave him the truth uh, as off as it sounded. She may have not said anything because an angel of God showed up and told me I'm going to give birth to the Savior and that the Holy Spirit is responsible for his conception. How can you not believe that, Joseph? I don't know if she even told him. Maybe she, she hoped that the Lord would do the work of convincing Joseph just as when she showed up to Elizabeth and Mary didn't have to say a word but Elizabeth knew who she was pregnant with. But there is this tension. Joseph is being really lenient. He's divorcing her quietly. He's not spreading bad rumors. He's not using the law and stoning her, but he just wants out. Understandably so. But then we read in verse 20, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So uh, as a pastor, I think that's one job that maybe you shouldn't try to reinvent the will. You know, if you're ever preaching new things, there's a Bible to check that against. So I'm going to take this phrase and this point that I'm about to give you straight from another pastor preaching on the same exact text to say this. Sometimes the Lord hands us a new script. Sometimes the Lord hands us a new script. And let me unpack that for you in an illustration. I had the guts for a while to play character parts in plays in high school and a little after. And I had a love-hate relationship with it because I hated, absolutely hated, memorizing lines. And for other people, I was certain it came natural. But for me... I like learning and reading information, but reading the same things over and over and over and trying to commit them verbatim to memory was just too time-consuming and too boring. <laughs> now, I loved it was when I was on the stage, and hey, I got to play a part because I had the lines down. But just the build-up and the time spent in memorizing lines, you know, I, I was certain that other students probably just went home and read through the play twice and probably knew it all, <laughs> inside out, backwards, <laughs> But for me, it wasn't easy for me. Well, I remember sitting on the bench right by a stage entrance to go into the stage. And this was, you know, one of the first nights when we're putting on the production. People paid for entrance. And what am I doing? I'm frantically reading my lines because I'm certain that the two seconds I go out there on the stage, I'm going to forget my lines and look really, really stupid. (laughs) Well, imagine the feeling if someone showed up and said, hey, you have a new script. Right. You'll be playing the part of this character now, but I'm only on in a few minutes. I imagine both Mary and Joseph had their scripts down. We're going to be a quiet couple. We're going to follow the footsteps of our parents. Nazareth is small, but it's home. We're going to raise a good God fearing family. We're going to live the quiet life because that's what we want. Mary comes home pregnant. New script for Joseph. She's not who I thought she was. <laughs> she, she's brought shame on herself and her family, and I want no part in it. Or I'll find my woman to settle down with for the quiet life in Nazareth somewhere else. My heart's broken. This is who I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. And so he divorces her quietly. 
But then God shows up and says, you're not understanding, Joseph. I have a new script for you. I want you with Mary. And this has got to be bittersweet because suddenly Joseph realizes, well, Mary is the virtuous woman that Joseph thought she was. She was telling the truth. But so much hurt has to be in the wings. Perhaps Mary wouldn't fault him for wanting to divorce her. It was a tall sounding tale. But now the shame and reproach that would be reserved for Mary would be for both of them. Because it took an angel of God to convince Joseph that Mary is telling the truth. It's not like that angel is going to show up to every single person that Mary knew, that they knew Mary was pregnant prior to Joseph and Mary getting married. In fact, we read in the book of John, the Pharisees caught wind, must have caught wind of the circumstances surrounding Joseph and Mary and Jesus because they, they say things like, well, at least we know who our father is, <laughs> Right? As in, there goes Mary's son, but as for the father, well, Joseph took her, but who knows who the father is? That's the idea. The angel's words to Joseph in the dream are very particular. Joseph, son of David. Son of David. Matthew, our author, has made sure to point out in Matthew 1.1 and 1.17, really to emphasize that Jesus is the son of David. This really has its beginning, excuse me, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when the Lord promises to David a son. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So this son of David has a kingdom established by God who builds a house, just as Jesus has given us a temple of God. And this son of David will have a kingdom forever. God will be to him a father, and he a son. That all sounds like Jesus. Well, the angel shows throws in the son of David, where in the time of Joseph, the son of David is much more than just parentage, but it has to do with connotations of prophecy and a loaded figure. Perhaps Joseph is subtly prepared to hear what he hears next. The angel continues, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph here is presented with the truth. And again, here's what we don't know. We don't know if Mary gave Joseph this story before Joseph decided to divorce her. We don't know if she silently submitted, giving Joseph no answer about how she conceived. But what we do know is that an angel of God presented the truth to Joseph. A spiritual revelation. I want to make a connection here, but I want to preface it by saying this. I know this revelation here about God's incarnation into the world is a category to itself. And what I mean by that is nobody can look at this story and say, oh yeah, I've had that dream. I get it. No. But consider this in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. It tells us that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit, spiritual revelation. Hebrews eleven six. 
And without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him without faith. Here's the connection I want to make for us. When presented with the truth, what will you do? An angel of God is showing up, but I want you to hear for Joseph that this is a daunting responsibility. It's, it's good news wrapped up in a hard life. <laughs> do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Oh, good. That's what Joseph wants. Mary, things can go back as planned, but they can't. <laughs> for that which is conceived in her, oh, yeah, there is that, <laughs> is from the Holy Spirit. You hear that? It's from God. God's the Father. She's giving birth to God. <laughs> oh, wow, that's different. <laughs> And I didn't believe that before an angel told me. And if the angel doesn't reveal this to other people, suddenly I have to raise God and I have to bear the reproach of other people who will respond just like I did in unbelief. And maybe a little bit more or a little bit less righteous and compassionate than I did. Do you hear that? Here's the connection for you and me. Whether it be the Spirit calling us to salvation in the first place or the Spirit calling us to faith and what He has in store for our lives, sometimes it's also good news wrapped up in a hard life. The Spirit shows up and says, This Jewish prophet and teacher born by the Holy Spirit through Mary is God. He is perfect. He did die. He did rise for your sake. And you are forgiven. Good news. I'm forgiven. I'm saved. And then we consider the hard life. And he said people hated him and they'll hate you. He calls people to a higher calling and others will resent you for it. He claims to be God and rise from the dead. But that was 2000 years ago and people don't see him today. So they might be skeptical and hate you and make fun of you for believing in him. Hard life. You hear that? How about Hebrews 11? Lots of people called to specific tasks. Build a boat. Hard life. Made fun of it. Noah was. Leave your family in your homeland and head out. Where? <laughs> to a land I will give you. Oh, and the land is currently occupied by lots of people. <laughs> and when Abraham's descendants will receive the land is ambiguous at best. Hard life. Go and offer your son up in a sacrifice. Your long-awaited promised son, Abraham. Ah, that doesn't sound like God, but he's telling me to do this. Hard thing. Take this wife who appears to the rest of the world to be a harlot. And your taking her will make you appear to be a dishonorable, foolish man. Oh, yeah, and raise God. <laughs> when presented with the truth, what will you do? That's why Jesus says in Luke 14 that life with him, being his disciple, involves counting a cost. It's costly to be his disciple. It's this paradox that salvation is free and salvation is costly. Being his follower is to be desired above all things, but I can tell you that acting on the sin of coveting, that to the, the desire to desire something about all things can be costly. Jesus is clear in Luke fourteen thirty three. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Hmm. You know, I never heard that at Billy Graham crusades. <laughs> Joseph didn't wake up someday and ask for this life. He was given a new script, but he trusted and obeyed. And it wasn't without deep 
satisfying fulfillment. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I find this so, so cool. (laughs) I went over to Luke chapter 1, and when the angel shows up to Mary, we do hear the angel say to Mary in Luke 1, verse 31, You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of the kingdom there will be no end. Well, firstly, I was a little bit... um, facetious, I guess, and say, well, Joseph got the latest news. He was told to name Jesus, and he was the last one who was told that, so he got to name Jesus. No, it doesn't matter. (laughs) But we hear the majesty and kingship, but consider this. Joseph gets his own little revelation for just for himself to have. What Joseph did receive that Mary did not is what Jesus will do, what his mission is. He will save his people from their sins. Now consider this, Joseph is let in on what everyone, and I mean everyone in the life of Jesus, misses out on. Joseph is told, plain and simple, the Pharisees are floored that Jesus thinks he can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. They ask for signs. Jesus' disciples keep on thinking he's going to restore the kingdom to David's glory days. Tell us plainly, Jesus is told by his opponents at times, who are you? Joseph is told in a dream before Jesus is born. He will be your son, basically. You will call him Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. He will save his people from their sins. I love that. I love what Adam Clark says. He's an old British Methodist commentator, and he writes this for us. He says, This shall be his great business in the world, the great errand on which he is come, that is, to make atonement for and to destroy sin, deliverance from all the power, guilt, and pollution of sin is the privilege of every believer in Christ Jesus. Less than this is not spoken of in the gospel, and less than this would be unbecoming the gospel. The perfection of the gospel system is not that it makes allowances for sin, but that it makes an atonement for it, not that it tolerates sin, but that it destroys it. Big stuff, (laughs) to say it lightly. Great stuff. In fact, Matthew would go on to say that this is the stuff, Joseph, that the prophets foretold. We have Joseph on this biblical pedestal, the entourage of biblical characters. But let's not forget that the New Testament characters, that they have the Old Testament prophets and saints to look back on and read and wonder about. What did David look like? How did he act? What did Isaiah look like? What did Moses look like? How was their everyday life? Matthew writes, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew, 12 times in his gospel account, 12 times, shows us how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Now, some of you maybe hear my Bible is about Jesus sermons and you and if you're intrigued, you say, I wish I could just see that more plainly. Read the book of Matthew for beginners and highlight every time he connects Jesus to the Old Testament. You'll see 12 times. Now, some say, too, that this is that this is not only Matthew 
putting in here as the editor of his gospel account, his work, like he's taking an aside from the dream. Hey, this is what Isaiah talked about. But it could be that actually the angel is telling this to Joseph. This is what the prophets talked about. Isaiah 7.14 is brought up. Matthew's saying, here's how Isaiah is fulfilled. I just quoted Adam Clark. Uh, he also brought out, brought out something I never thought of. Many of you know that Genesis 3.15 is called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, because we have God declaring after the fall of man, I will put enmity between you, that is Satan or the serpent, and the woman, Eve, representing mankind, and between your seed, in other words, the offspring and serpents who take after the devil, and her seed, ultimately Jesus. So Paul tells us in Galatians that it was singular seed. He shall bruise your head. A decisive, fatal blow to Satan. Your head is going to be bruised. And you shall bruise his heel, which is still a important wound, just not a fatal one, just like he died, but he rose again. So first gospel. Well, Clark says that Jesus appears to come from only just one earthly parent out of the womb of Mary to fulfill in a very real way Genesis 3.15 that the promised seed is from woman, just woman, from Mary. Fulfilling Genesis 3.15, which makes no mention of a father. I thought that was very interesting, and you're like, I could have done without that today. Thanks, Kevin. But (laughs) beyond all this talk of a virgin is the very mind-blowing reality that he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. This is why when I said things before, like Joseph has to raise God, I wasn't saying it flippantly. But rather, Joseph is hearing that the very son in Mary's womb that Joseph will raise as an adoptive father is nothing less than God with us. And I think we just pass over that phrase kind of nonchalantly. Well, there's a thought. Well, moving on. (laughs) I could preach a whole sermon on this, and I think I've done before. And I would say that the Bible entire subject is about God with us. Imagine Joseph trying to wrap his head around God with us, the the, the God who flooded the entire world, the God that showed up to Moses and delivered an entire nation from Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and the God who worked through the prophets to literally inform nations that their days of reckoning were coming. He was coming. Isaiah, in fact, in other parts of his book, touched on and, and expounded on who Emmanuel is. Uh, We know this in Isaiah chapter 9, 6, and 7, a very familiar passage. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You hear those terms, mighty God, (laughs) everlasting Father, that's going to be the son i got to raise. A kingdom without end. Steve, Steve read for us in Isaiah 11 earlier. The son of David, the root of Jesse is spoken about. So again, this, this has got to be a little bittersweet for Joseph. This amazing reality that God is becoming flesh, the Savior of the world is coming, the Messiah is here, and he's coming through the womb of Mary, the wife of Joseph, who's suddenly given the heavy weight of raising God. 
who is suddenly given the lifelong scorn of taking a wife who appears to be a harlot to the world. He's handed a new script. I wonder if you've ever been handed a new script. It is cancer. Your children did turn out to be thus far someone who seemed so far from God's saving grace. You didn't get that job. You don't have that money. You do feel called to minister to that friend or neighbor, but you're stuck between feeling like you're the only person for the job and wondering why others aren't standing up to help you. You did have to move, or maybe you didn't move. The plans did change, or maybe it's like Joseph and your marriage is going in a direction that you never thought it would. Or you've been given a burden, a mission, something you thought God would never lay on your shoulders. What do you do? What did Joseph do? When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. Joseph is the best kind of theologian, the kind that doesn't talk. He just does. He just does. Do you know that Joseph in the Bible, nowhere is recorded a word from him? He never speaks. Do you know that, or we hear a few words from Mary and Luke, and in fact we hear a whole song, but as for Joseph, no words, just action. And I have to say, for a theology brain like me, I should take a hint. <laughs> Joseph just does. He, he trusts and he obeys. Joseph was sleeping and it said when he woke from the very same dream, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Now, again, I can't overemphasize the mission and the task that was laid on Joseph as a category to itself. Hey, that baby is God in Mary's womb and she's telling the truth and I want you to take her and raise him. Okay. <laughs> Nobody could really say that they've had that dream. I get that. But what I can say is how many times do we know what we need to do And we know what God's calling us for, but we don't have the simple obedience of Joseph right here. Who took on a probably more than we'd ever have to take on. You hear that? I'll tell you what this looks like in me, in my theological brain. A lot of self-religious justifying. (laughs) I'm I'm not doing that, God, because I can build a fairly decent case with the scriptures you wrote against what you're telling me. You don't think Joseph could have done that? Maybe it would have involved chalking, chalking up his dream that he had to the nachos he had the night before, which I'm sure were around in biblical times. <laughs> Not really. But surely God wouldn't come in and on the process make his would-be mother look like a harlot. And surely the God of the universe would probably come through Jerusalem and in a palace. And i got to be honest, that's me. Sometimes I think I have God figured up, out. And I could come up with some pretty compelling, even scriptural sounding arguments to get out of what God wants me to do. And if we do have failure here, I suggest this, that our ability in obeying is directly related to, and without a doubt, gauges our propensity to trust in God. Because if we truly trusted God with everything, then we without a doubt would not hesitate to obey Some of us, myself included, pride ourselves in being true believers, Christ followers, and standing out in the strongholds of what we think to be orthodoxy and right belief and the right people when the truth is, is we can take a hint from Joseph here. We can take stock of our heart and we can really 
truly discern our obedience by our ability and trusting of what God would have us do as opposed to just filling our heads with all the right stuff. Do you hear that? Commentator Joseph Benson would say this, when God speaks to our hearts, we speedily and cheerfully do what before we not only scrupled, but thought perhaps most inconvenient and unpleasing and even contrary to the dictates of reason. Wow. Build a massive ark. Inconvenient. Why? I intend to save humanity and the animal kingdom when I flood the whole earth. Well, that's reasonable. Sure. (laughs) Take your son, whom I first promised to you, and prepare to sacrifice him. Well, that's unpleasing. Very contrary to reason. Very contrary to the way God normally operates. Take this wife, thought to be a harlot, and raise God. What's God calling you to do? Has he called you to faith and are you fully committed to faith? Has he called you to a task that is inconvenient, unpleasing, maybe not even reasonable? And how are you answering? The odds are your obedience is going only so far as you trust him. Let's pray. Father, the the saying goes is all you need to do is listen to what the preacher is saying and you know what he's going through in his personal life. But Father, if many of us are, are here, we pray for your spirit's power to be obedient. Um, we pray for, we pray like the father did whenever you healed his son. I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, many of us are in situations where what's needed is not more information. But what's needed is just simple trust in you to do what you're calling us to do. Of course, there is a time and a place where discernment needs to take place. But at the same time, sometimes we have the propensity to overanalyze and to basically outthink ourselves out of obeying you. Help us to know that balance and help us to be willing to follow you wherever you call us. Father, help us to take hope in what we see in Hebrews 11 and what we see in Joseph, who was willing to obey whenever the odds were high, who was really really willing to, to be a true disciple, to renounce all that he has or all that he is and follow you. And whenever you called him to a most high task that he was willing to immediately, it seems, as Matthew tells us, give us that sort of trust and faith in you. Father, we love you and we thank you. We pray that this would be utilized in our lives and that by it you would help us usher in more people into your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor Kevin Davis here at Woodland Friends Church. Hey, just want to chime in and do something I never wish I had to do. Uh, The ministry we use so you can hear our sermons is starting to charge money, but they're giving us a good deal since we've been with them. Only five bucks a month. Um, I don't know if you know this, Woodland Friends Church is a small church. We see about 30 to 50 people. We live out in the remote wilderness of Idaho. And we have pressing matters like missions and other things that we can be doing to help the family of God. But uh, we know this helps the family of God. And if you want to chip in and pay for one month, five bucks, that's a sweet deal. Um, That would be appreciated. Just write uh, with a memo in the check. Uh, online sermons and the address is is 1993 Woodland Road KAM 
I-A-H, that's Kamii, K-A-M-I-A-H, Idaho, 83536. We would appreciate it. We thank you very much for listening.